This week on Breaking Bullying, we are going to learn the way of the cobra on how to handle bullying. So I'm going to hit that music and get started. You might know my next guest as Deacon Sharp from Bold and the Beautiful and Young and the Restless. Or for me, I know him as Karate's Bad Boy, a.k.a. Mike Barnes, Sean Kanan. Sean, thank you for coming on today. Tim, thanks so much. It's good to be with you. I'm like, just like got geeking out because I'm a big Karate Kid fan. <laughs> so I was like, yes, Mike Barnes. I hated you in Karate Kid Part 3, but I love you as a person. Well, I don't blame you. <laughs> so let's get right to it. When you were in third grade, you ended up finding yourself hiding behind a short wall. What was going on? Yeah, when I was a, a young kid, I was this chubby uh, kid with a bad haircut and uh, glasses. And I was one of probably five Jewish kids in the whole school. It wasn't exactly the trifecta for popularity. And, um, you know, I, I found myself... Uh, the target of a lot of bullies for a while. And so when you, that, that was a, a story you were recounting about one of the many times that I was trying to uh, make it back to my house for lunch uh, and not get spotted by, uh, you know, the, the gang of uh, older kids, bullies that uh, used to stalk me. Was it always the same kids? No, they like to mix it up, but there were different kids. So, you know, they, they bring someone in from the bullpen. <laughs> Was there one certain kid that was like your true bully? Like, yeah, I had a couple. I had a couple, and they were and they were older kids, which you know, I really. It's one of, you know, we all think of bullies. We hate bullies, but there's something about it when it's like an older kid picking on a younger kid. One of them was uh, our neighbor who lived like two streets up, and you know, so I would always see him. I was always in his crosshairs, but yeah, there were there were a couple in the neighborhood that were. Uh, uh, frequent flyers for me. What kind of stuff did they do to you? You know, there was there was uh, a lot of anti-Semitic abuse, verbal abuse. Uh, it was physical sometimes. Sometimes I got away. Sometimes I didn't get away. As I got older, you know, and I, I wound up starting to study martial arts and work out, got rid of the glasses and the bad haircut and got in better shape. Slowly but surely, you know, I, I, I didn't get bullied anymore. Did your bullying start in third grade or did it start before that? Oh, geez. I, you know, I... Uh, I think it probably started a little earlier than that. Yeah. I think it probably started around uh yeah, around first or second grade. Were you kind of like the loner in school at that age? Or did you have like a group of friends to kind of have your back? No, I did I didn't. I was I was kind of a loner. I've always kind of been kind of a loner. I'm not a I'm not a real joiner, even you know, as an adult. That doesn't mean I can't be a team player. I can be a team player, but um I just, you know, my dad, my dad's an amazing guy. My father, uh belongs to like 50 different organizations in what was my hometown still is my hometown where he still lives and he's still involved with all these different things and it just kind of it was never really for me i always kind of like to do my own thing yeah how did the bullying stop for you well like i said you know as i took martial arts my confidence grew you know i learned what it was to stand face to face with a guy and you know have to you know engage in in sparring and Slowly but surely, um, you know, I grew physically, I got stronger and, uh, you know, there were definitely times when I had to, I had to put it to use in time where it got around that, you know, I wasn't the guy that was the target. So when you had to put it to use, what can you say what happened? Like, I mean, I remember, you know, one time in particular, I was, uh, riding the school bus 
And uh, this this guy was picking, or this kid was picking on uh, this girl, and he and I traded words, and um, fists were thrown, and I, I wound up getting suspended. Really, for sticking up for somebody. Yeah, yeah, I was sticking up for her, sticking up yeah. for me, and um, you know, I mean, I, listen, fighting fighting is something that I just I really think is something that should be a last resort always, but. Unfortunately, there are times when, you know, you simply can't rationalize with somebody and you, know, you try to walk away and you, you can't, or you feel like you're in imminent danger of getting hurt. Then, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a proponent of striking first, so to speak. Did you join martial arts because you're a bully? Was that kind of like your motivator to start? No, I actually, no, this is how it started. So I actually started boxing and I was boxing at this gym. For a very short amount of time, it was on the south side of Youngstown, Ohio, and it was a rough area. And when my parents kind of figured out that this was a gym that was really kind of an incubator for guys that were trying to get out of their socioeconomic situation, my parents were like, okay, we're, we're getting our, our nice son from the suburbs out of there. And my father, uh, we, we had a chain of jewelry stores, but early on, some of them sold electronics. And I remember some of the stock boys uh, were showing pictures of their karate class. And it was in my hometown. My parents said, you know, maybe that would be a good alternative to boxing. I, I didn't really want to take karate at first. I really liked boxing. You got to remember in 1976, Rocky had come out. So there was that, that boxing mania was still, you know, really at the forefront. But I, I decided to take classes and I, I liked it almost immediately. Uh, I was just bitten by it. And, uh, you know, it's something that has stayed with me all my life. Are you also a tournament competitor? I did compete in tournaments. Um, I, I won a, a few tournaments for kata, um, not for kumite. I did compete in kumite, but I didn't, I didn't win. I, I won primarily in kata. So fast forward to your late teens, early 20s. I was taking when you were mm -hmm. casting a karate kid three. What, what mm -hmm. was it like to play the bully? Mm, it was interesting. Well, it was interesting because, you know, I, having come from a background of being bullied and then ultimately going on to play this character that's this iconic bully, ironic, that's, that's the word that comes to mind. And I think on some level, I probably drew from a lot of the experiences that I had, but what I was, was, you know, a lot of the, probably the pent up rage that I had from when, when it was happening to me. Did anything that you did at Daniel, did that, any of that happen to you in, in real life? Um, no one ever broke my karate teacher's bonsai tree. Um, Did they show up to your house or in your, or in your backyard. Oh, they would, they would show up to my house. Yeah. No, I think Daniel had it a lot worse. So when you played that character, Mike Barnes, do you let think back to that time when you're bullied and kind of let that anger out as you're acting? You know, I, I, I probably subconsciously tapped into some of that, but I'll be honest, the, the primary motivating source of anger for me specifically at the all valley tournament came from my disappointment frustration and anger at how i was treated by the studio when i had my life-threatening injury you know and how i was treated I mean, yeah there were no balloons there was no uh, get well soon cards it was you know get back to the set in i, I don't know 10 days to two weeks max and or you're going to lose the job and I was, I was really pissed off at the way that I was treated. If I'm being completely honest, I was pissed off that it had happened to me. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of victim mentality. And I, I got out of the victim mentality very quickly. And my why 
my driving force became this. I, I felt like my sense of my sense of justice was affronted. In other words, I, I felt like this isn't right. I worked so hard to get this. And now, you know, not only is it potentially going to be taken away from me because of the physical limitations from my surgery, but you know, the studio is, I feel like they're also against me, you know, it, it fueled me, it drove me. And, uh, you know, I, I discharged myself against medical advice from the hospital and I began rehabilitating myself immediately. And, um, you know, I wound up doing all of my own martial arts stunts. In, wow. uh, because you got injured on set. That's how you ended up in the hospital, correct? Yeah. I, uh, I had, uh, I perforated my momentum, which I didn't even know what an omentum was. Uh, it sits on top of your uh, greater intestine, I think. And long story short, I, I was bleeding internally. Uh, Christmas Day, 1988, I passed out in the Dunes Casino, was rushed to Humana Sunrise Hospital in Vegas, and was told that they didn't know if they could save my life. I, I was having extensive discomfort in my upper left thigh, which I thought was due to all the martial arts I was doing. So I was taking a lot of aspirin, which of course is yeah. blood thinner, exacerbated the bleeding. And you know, I was really lucky. I'll tell you why. I, I drove to Vegas with a friend. And had I not had that accident on Christmas Day, and had we gotten back in the car and driven back through the desert, and I passed out there, I don't think I could have gotten to a level one trauma center that could have saved my life. Besides the studio reaching out to you when you were um, in the hospital, and they were just like, hurry up and get back to the set. Yeah, like one week or so to get back. Did any of your cast... A little longer. Did, did anybody, yeah. like your castmates, come you know, say hi or give you any support? No. Uh, that's okay. I mean, ultimately, it worked out the way it was supposed to. You know, it's a, it's, it's a corny cliche, taking lemons and making lemonade, but there's a lot of truth to it. And I got dealt some shitty cards, but it also turned out to be one of the very best things ever happened to me. I wouldn't trade that experience. I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but I wouldn't trade it because it really showed me at a relatively young age, two things. The first is it showed me my mortality. You know, when you're that age, you think you're immortal and you're going to live forever. And I learned that that's not the case. I learned how fragile life can be, but it also revealed a part of my character that I didn't know up to that point existed. And at least in that moment, in that snapshot of time, when the going got tough, I got going. Um, you know, I, I had no choice. There was just simply no way that I was going to lose that role. I recognized the importance of that role. I was very, very well aware, even before the film came out, that this was a life-changing event for me. Yeah. And I recognized that if I didn't finish the film, that was going to be one of the greatest regrets of my life, having had that opportunity. and that. I wasn't able to complete it. So I, I even told my father at one point, I said, dad, if I can't finish this film, I just, you know, I, I don't want to live. Now, of course that was um, very hyper dramatic, yeah. but I am an actor. So give me a break. Right. And I, I remember that all Valley scene very well. I I'm guessing it's where Daniel is on the floor. He was afraid and you went up to him and you're like cussing at him. Get up. You called him every name. Miyagi is crap. You yeah. know, I mean, so that was you just yeah, letting yeah. it all out at that moment. That was it. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I was still, I, I still had a, you know, completely unhealed wound at that, at that point. You know, I always joke that it was a good thing that the Cobra Kai wore those black gaze 
because had I been wearing a white gi, you probably would have seen blood coming through. And I just, I just let go. You know, they said, they said, just go for it. Um, John Alvelson gave me a couple lines to say. Oddly enough, uh, the lines John gave me were the ones that were the, you know, sort of the, the Asian, uh, racist Asian lines that I don't think that would have come to yeah. me. But, you know, I think it worked for the character. I mean, you know, I don't think now with the level of political correctness and everything like that, even for a reprehensible psychopathic bully like Mike Barnes, you would hear a lot of that stuff being scripted. Um, and, and, you know, when I watch it now, I, I just kind of cringe. But uh, I think it worked at that point in time because no one had ever spoken to Daniel like that. And no one had ever referred to Mr. Miyagi like that. And I think that's part of what really psychologically eviscerated Daniel and put him in a place where he was terrified. Yeah. I'm going to fast forward now a little bit, kind of beyond the karate kid to the outside. Like people like me, you, we think you lived a perfect life, but you had some, mm. you know, downfalls in your life, but now you turn it sure. around looking as a parent telling your child who's being bullied. How can we explain mm. that to a child that I know you're being bullied, your life sucks right now, but it's going to get better. Yeah, bullying's a really tricky problem. You know, it's become a pandemic now with cyberbullying because, you know, back in my day, you get bullied on the way to school and, you know, on the, on the playground and going home. But now with, you know, the hit of one keystroke, kids are getting bullied. 24 seven to a thousand different people put up on YouTube, which, you know, it's in perpetuity, it's forever. And when kids are getting bullied for many of them, it seems like there's simply no alternative. There's no, there's no way out. And unfortunately, teen suicide is the fourth leading cause of death, you know, among, among adolescents and teens. And, um, bullying is a major contributor to that. And if I, would offer any advice to parents, I would tell them this, that you need to be observant. You need to be involved. You know, your kid might only come to you one time. They might summon up the courage one time to say, listen, I'm getting picked on. And if they catch you at the wrong moment, you're busy or you're dismissive or you're on the phone and don't hear it, they might not do it again. And that might make the difference between them taking their life or not. Um, I think another part of it is that kids need to understand that if you're being bullied and you tell someone that doesn't make you a rat. Okay. Um, you know, kids have a, um, you know, a sometimes distorted code of honor about that. Even if they're being bullied, um, you know, they don't want to tell anybody. That's embarrassing too. You don't want to go to your parents. It's embarrassing. Of course. And I, I understand that because I, I went, I went through it. Um, I think the more we talk about it, I think the more teachers are aware about it, you know, but there's, you know, there's so much craziness going on right now that a lot of teachers are worried to step in because, you know, they don't want to get jammed up where they grab a kid, one kid off another. And, and, you know, suddenly they find themselves on the receiving end of a lawsuit or that, I mean, there's, there's so many different nanoshades of gray that make this a more complex problem than it used to be. I think the best advice is to help kids understand how to be civil with each other, how to have a strong sense of character, 
how to have a strong sense of identity, which comes from finding that thing that you're good at and then nurturing it so that you realize that you have something special to show the world, whether it's through music or athletics or debate team or, you know, I don't know, basket weaving, whatever. Everybody's got to give, yep. right? And, but I really think that it starts at home. Yeah. You know, the way we speak to each other, the way we speak to ourselves is important. You know, you'd be amazed like in life, you can be your biggest cheerleader or your biggest heckler, depending on the way you talk to yourself. And, you know, a lot of kids who suffer from low self-esteem, you know, you'll hear them saying, oh, God, I'm so stupid or things like that. And Bruce Lee said, it. your brain doesn't understand the difference from when you're joking or not when you say things like that. How you talk to yourself is really important. You know, it's, 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 it's as important as how you talk to other people and how you allow other people to talk to yeah. you. And, you know, I'm obviously a huge proponent of martial arts. I mean, I would get every single kid in elementary school and high school in martial arts. When kids know how to take care of themselves, bullies will think twice. I think kids who are bullies who have the benefit of martial arts training will learn empathy and compassion, humility, camaraderie, honor. And, and I think everybody would be better for having some kind of some kind of training like that. One thing I learned in martial arts that it's not a team sport. I used to play baseball when I was in eighth grade. I sat on the bench a lot because I sucked at it. I tried golf. Oh, me too. Sucked at it. But in martial arts, you can go as fast, as slow as you want. And if you want to compete in a tournament, you can do that if you want. If you lose your first tournament, you can put, do the next one. There's no limits to it. You know, I, I agree that it's not a team sport, but I also believe that when you join a dojo, that you are being integrated into a group of people that are all going through the same difficult but rewarding process, kind of like going to the military, I would imagine. You know what I mean? You know, uh, brothers in arms. I mean, well, you're joining a family. Yeah. And, you know, it's a great thing for kids, even if they're awkward, whatever, you know, you get them into a dojo and it's very likely that they're going to meet an older kid who's going to be assigned to help them with their techniques. And they're going to, they're going to learn, Hey, you know what? There are older role model kids that I can look to. And they're going to see that, you know, other kids maybe are struggling with something and they're going to all do it together. And I, hopefully they will form some really good friendships in it. And, you know, as you said, yeah, it's not a team sport per se, but I think there's a tremendous amount of esprit de corps when you're part of a dojo. Yeah. And it's also like your safe place because no one in your school is going to be a bully or pick on you because if you did that, no. you're in a big trouble. You're going to get kicked out. Yeah. Cause that, cause, cause then, cause then this, if, if he's a good sensei or she's a good sensei, you're going to get your ass kicked by the sensei. Yeah. You know, so I mean, I, you could always tell who was kind of behaving outside the acceptable parameters when my teacher would put his gloves on and say, you, let's go. Yeah. You know, and I found myself on the receiving end of that, too. Not because I was a bully, but, you know, probably because I was not paying attention or doing something I shouldn't yeah. have. I don't know. Lucky for me, I think I sparred my instructor maybe a handful of times and he whooped my butt every time. But that's when I was like like a green belt. When I got a black belt, he never touched me. He's the teacher he's supposed to. Yeah. Right? Yeah. These days, like as I I run a martial arts school right now, is like we're not allowed to touch the kids. It's a different training atmosphere. Yeah, you know, that's a big that's you know, that's a that's a big problem. Um, I think it's important to know what it feels like to get hit yeah. for a couple reasons. Well, you can hit I mean, the kids can hit each other. I I can't spar my students. 
Well, I see. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We used to get hit, but you know, it teaches you that you don't want to get hit, but it also teaches you that although it hurts and it's a shock, you can power through it most times. And so you learn to have a respect for it rather than an abject fear of yeah. it. Yeah. That's why I, I make sparring a requirement when you're advanced rank. I don't want kids to go through martial arts, not learning how to take a hit or hit. They have to. You, you have to do it. You have to spar because otherwise someone, I, I read this somewhere is if you're doing martial arts and not sparring, it's called dance. Yeah. I would agree with that. Or Tai Chi, yeah. right? That's probably even a better, better one. Yeah, I would agree. I think sparring, I think sparring is very important. Early on, you mentioned bullying has become a pandemic, which I totally agree. And schools seem to be lost on how to fix it. People say it's the parents' responsibility. Sometimes the parents can't control their own kid either. Is there a way to resolve bullying? I go back to what I said, that it needs to start at home. It needs to start with teaching children how to be assertive without being aggressive how to have a strong sense of self, how to be empathetic and compassionate, how to be of service, meaning helping others. And I think when you start turning out more, you can't turn out a fully formed human being as a child because they're still growing and learning, but you can, you can equip them with some really good basic hardwiring, yeah. okay? So that their default isn't shame and negativity and embarrassment and anger and and all those sort of things that lead into you know fertile ground for bullying. I think that having conversations about it is healthy. Yeah. I think creating an atmosphere where it is not okay to be bullying. You know, this this crap where kids put this stuff on the internet. Yeah. You know, there has to be consequences for that. And you know, it's so stupid too. These poor kids they don't realize that they are putting out their job applications in 10 years because the internet's forever and they're going to put something out and many, many employers will ask for the passwords to your social media uh, or they will scour your social media before they hire you. And, you know, if that stuff's up there, you know, from, from simply an insurance point of view, even if it was 10 years ago, not going to take a risk on hiring someone that had had explosive violence as a 16 or 17 year old and now as a 27 year old college graduate is asking you for a job i mean why take the risk so these kids need to realize that when they do stuff like that they are really really shooting themselves in the foot can't tell your employer i'm a good team player but yet i'm also the bully you know we talked about starts at home parents you know we we got to start teaching our kids very young like one years old, yeah. they have to learn that positivity. They have to get that positivity in their brain right now. Praise them for every good thing they do. I think praise them for every good thing they do. I, I don't know about that. I, I believe in praising them. Okay. But I mean, this crap where people get ninth place. Well, this is when they're, I'm talking about when they're young, like they're toddlers. I would even say when they're young. I mean, you know, you know, there's a lot of psychological evidence that sometimes allowing a child to cry without immediately attending to that need sometimes is an effective reinforcement way to, you know, keep them from getting linked up in their cerebral hardwiring that when I act out or cry or, you know, that, that's how I get what I want. No, of course, I'm not, I'm not yeah. saying when a child's hungry and crying, don't feed it. I mean, let's not be crazy here. 
but but when a child throws a tantrum and the parent lets it go on and on, I mean, we've all seen it, right? You know, when a child's acting like a complete ape in a, a restaurant or, you know, throws themselves down on, on the floor in a supermarket crying and the parents sort of indulge yep. it, it's extremely destructive and detrimental to that child. You know, they need to learn immediately. That is unacceptable behavior. It's not going to be tolerated. And if you're going to do that, you know, you're going to be disciplined because kids that don't learn healthy parameters and discipline as small children and then going into young adulthood, the slack gets picked up by the police frequently and the system. Because when you act out like that in public and you get caught and prosecuted, you're going to have consequences that are going to have, you know, long-term effects in your life. And it's better to treat them as children like, you know, with the potential for consequences, because you're, you're really, you're really helping them. Yeah. I heard a phrase before, if you don't train your kids, so, you know, the, the police, the police will. will. And, and, and the flip, and the flip side of that, the flip side, you know, that, that stupid, everyone's a winner mentality is yeah. that you do praise the children and, and you do give them self-esteem and you do tell them when they are doing right. You know, it's a balance. And, you know, I talk about in my book, the difference between shame and toxic shame and toxic shame is the kind of shame that's humiliating embarrassing and destructive. Shame can be a very effective motivator. You know, the shame of knowing that you didn't do your best, the shame of behaving in a way that is, you know, it, it, it's cognitive dissonance from how you know you should behave and you're not living up to it, that sort of thing. It's okay if that triggers shame, if it pushes you to do better and learn from it. But the toxic, humiliating kind of shame is the stuff that makes somebody retreat into, you know, anger, embarrassment, and want to lash out and take it out on somebody else, I think. I mean, look, I'm obviously, I'm obviously not a professional psychologist. This is just one guy's opinion, but, you know, I think there's some merit to it. What are your thoughts on participation trophies where every kid gets a... Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I'm saying. I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, yeah. the, the real world does not work like that, you know, uh, Promotions are not given to reward mediocrity. Okay. How do you know what it's like to win if you're always being told whatever effort you give is the same as everyone else's and everyone gets a trophy? For me, that's communism. Okay. Listen, everybody in this country deserves equal opportunity. They do not deserve equal results. There's a lot of reasons why people don't get equal results. And effort is a big reason. Okay. I mean, I think it's it's just it's detrimental to kids when you basically let them know that, you know, however you do, it's, it's, it's good enough and you're going to get the same reward and recognition as the guy that, or girl that did the best. No, it give them something to aspire to. I think schools and to a certain extent society is so worried about shaming kids. Okay. And, you know, I, I guarantee that the Chinese right now um, aren't giving participation trophies. You know, they're trying to find out which kid is the absolute best math mathematician in third grade. So he can be the guy that does uh, the best development of algorithms for AI. Okay. And I'll tell you, this yeah. is really going to come and bite us in the ass. And these chickens are yeah. going to come home to roost in the next couple years, in the next probably seven to 10 years, when we find out that there were monumental educational mistakes made and sociological mistakes made with how we are rearing our children. Yeah, Merritt, back in, when I was in school, you could fail a grade. It was possible yeah. you will take that Hell grade yeah, over again. Could. That's not even heard of anymore. Yeah. yeah, and so what happens? Yeah. Kids get passed along, and, you know, America is, I don't even know what the number is, but we are 
way, 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 way down on, you know, in, in the, uh, the chronology of highest test scores, both verbally and mathematically. Yeah. And, you know, this no kid left behind. I think that was a horrendous mistake. You know, kids get passed along. A school's job is not to tell you what to think. It's to tell you how to think. That's when you get older. And when you're yeah. younger, it is to give you the basic tools that you need to prepare you for more abstract and critical thinking as you get older. Look, kids are very concrete thinkers. You know, it's, everything's very black and white. And then as they get older and begin critical thinking, then they start to see that there's shades of gray in things. But when they are concrete thinkers, math is concrete. You know, math is, you know, math, is math, okay? And, and they need to be taught. I don't think that things need to be lowered to the lowest common denominator to accommodate everybody so nobody feels bad, okay? If a child yeah. is struggling, then that child deserves attention and needs to have every service possible to bring them up to where they need to be. But don't clip the wings of the kids that are, you know, flying. I mean, that's, that's soul-crushing to take a kid that has a unique and obvious talent academically and not let them fly because you don't want other kids to maybe feel bad. That's ridiculous. You know, let that kid inspire the rest of them. Correct. And the confidence ruining we're doing on those kids. I mean, we're, we're taking away their confidence yeah. too. Yeah. And low confidence yeah. kids or people yeah. get picked Absolutely. on. Absolutely. And, you know, and then if you've got kids that are really intelligent and you're kind of dumbing things down for them, what happens? You know, maybe they've got a little bit of ADHD and suddenly they're completely disengaged and they start seeking negative attention because they're not getting challenged academically. So they need some kind of stimulation, you know, and, and, and the, the inverse yeah. of that are the kids that are struggling academically and figure, screw it. I'm never going to get this. So, you know, what the hell's the point anyway? Look, I'm not a, a, a sociological educator. But maybe it would be best to put the kids that are at the top in one area where they get specific treatment that, that, that caters to their needs. And the kids that are struggling get special treatment that caters to their needs. You know, it's not one size fits all when you're teaching kids. Look, Albert Einstein, they thought he was, you know, they thought he was, um, you know, had a mental disability, I think, up until fourth grade. Yeah. You know, not everybody yeah. learns the same way. People learn auditorily, visually, kinesthetically. Um, you know, you got to figure out what the best way to, to reach a kid is and then try and teach them that way. And this one size fits all doesn't work. And I get what the teachers are going to say. Well, how the hell do we do that without the resources? You know, there's 40 kids in a class. That's a problem, too. I mean, I'm not saying it's an yeah. easy fix. I mean, this is a this is a multifaceted generational problem but we need to figure this out and the sad part is the school district itself can't do it it's it comes from state yep. level and you know it's 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 that state level because the federal government doesn't yeah. touch it yeah that's true sean thank you for coming on today and if people want to find you or read your books how can we do that yeah you can find me uh on twitter uh, at Sean Kanan or on Instagram, uh, Sean.Kanan, got the blue check mark. And um, if you would like to get my books, you can get them at waythecobra.com. You know, I always say that when you, 
when you've written books, of course, you want to sell books. But I want as many people to read the books as possible because I know in every fiber of my being that the information in the books is catalytic. It's got the potential to cause a profound positive change if you read it and you put it into action. And I wish that when I was 13, 14 years old, somebody had given me these books. So please get them at wayofthecobra.com. And the audiobook for Way of the Cobra is coming out probably in the next two weeks. It's completed. I just got it from the sound engineers. It's going to take about two weeks to upload it and get it through quality control from all the platforms. And it's read by yours truly. If you're not a person who loves to read books, you get the audio book as well. But I hate reading books. My ADHD mind yeah. goes off. But you've written th this book is so easy to read. And, it's, and I love the stories you tell in it about the Chinese farmer. You talk about you know, history with Karate Kid. Um, you had a lot yeah. of great stories mixed in. It's, it's an awesome book. You know, I, I, I wanted it to be like you're talking. I mean, I, I, you know, when, when you're giving advice in a book, I wanted to be very careful that I was being honest and authentic with my audience, that they understood that, you know, I'm not levitating on top of some mountain in Kathmandu. Uh, three feet ab above the ground. I've made every mistake in the book a dozen times over. And if I can act as a sensei, a teacher, and show you some of the pitfalls and holes along a well-worn path so that you can avoid them but still learn, that, that's, my, that's my objective in it. And you can even earn ranks in the way of the Cobra as yes, well. Yes. Uh, I, I got all the way to Black Belt in two days. The ah, fastest Black Belt ever I ever uh, got was in two days. Yeah. The uh, chapters are divided up into belts. I'm your sensei. Uh, it's the uh, dojo of Cobra life. And Cobra is an acronym formed from the words character, optimization, balance, respect, and abundance. And Sean, this February coming up, February 23rd, 24th, 25th, there is an event that we're both going to be at called the Voices Heard Summit. It's in Long Beach, California. You can get tickets right now on, I believe it's energymagazine.com, I-N-N-E-R-G-Y, but I will post that link in the show notes as well. Sean, can it be doing the Way of the Cobra talk? I'm running the Karate Chop Bowling Seminar myself, and it'd be a lot of other great speakers and a lot of great workshops, and it's geared towards kids make them better. And you know, it's, it's in a beautiful location. It's at a hotel overlooking the water. You see the Queen Mary. I mean, it's a really, really beautiful spot to be doing this and it's going to be a very special event with a lot of interesting dedicated uh out of the box people so please come check it out and say hi to me and say hi to tim yes. all right sean thank you again for coming on today hey tim thank you so much i appreciate it and for myself you can always find us at our very own website which is www.breakingbullying.com you can also reach out to us at our email address if you have a story of your own bowling to share, or for whatever reason you want to get a hold of us, our email address is breakbullyinghere at gmail.com. Now, if you're a victim of bullying and you don't know where to turn, there is online resources to help you. The first is the government's very own anti-bullying website, and the address is www.stopbullying.gov. And other online resource is www pacer.org backslash bullying. Now, if you have had thoughts of suicide or of self-harm, we implore you to stop. Reach out to the National Suicide Hotline. That number is very simple. It's 988. 
I'm Tim Flynn, and thank you for listening. And we will be back next week to continue the conversation to break the silence on bullying.